This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, an analyst and writer for MLB.com, joined by national editor Matt Myers. A little bit later on, we'll bring in our friend Keegan Matheson to talk about the Buffalo Blue Jays and everything that's been going on with that team. But first, we're going to get to a couple of fun segments. We have to try to figure out if Charlie Blackman can hit 400, and then we are going to get to our three-batter minimum segment with a couple of interesting topics about how the Padres are must-watch, how Randy Dobnak has history's lowest ERA, sort of, and dive into the worst ways to lose a ball game. Uh, at the end, we will introduce some interesting guys you don't know. I have an infield slugger. Matt has a lefty reliever. And finally, as usual, rants on rants on rants. But to begin, Charlie Blackman is hitting, and this is a real line, 500, 527, 721. I should say we are recording this on Wednesday afternoon. The Rockies do play a day game later today. He is in the starting lineup, so those numbers will change very soon. But still, 500, 34 hits in 68 plate appearances, over the course of a regular length season, you would look at that and go, wow, that's cool. Charlie Blackman is a very good hitter, and that number will come down. Uh, he's not going to hit 500 this year, but in a 60-game season, pretty interesting to think about whether he can or will or might hit 400 and how we might all react to that. So we have numbers, and we're going to dig into the numbers. But first, Matt, uh, just is he, right? Like, we just do that. Like, is he going to do it? Um, I think in this weird year, there's legitimately a chance he will hit 400. Um, you know, we can get into the math in a second, but um, I just think there, you know, at this point, he's already banked. You know, he's he's got you know those 34 hits and 68 uh, at bats in the in the in the bank, and so now it's like he doesn't need he's hitting 500 right now in the 60 game season. He doesn't need to hit 400 the rest of the way. He actually can hit you know a little less than that, and we'll we'll kind of get get in the nitty gritty. But I think it is very much within the realm of possibility, and like of course. This is not the same as Ted Williams hitting 406 in a full season in 1941. We totally get that. But I do kind of love the idea because, you know, like as time goes on, you know, you'll go on, on you know, baseball reference and you'll go on the leaderboards and you see the year by year leaders. And like, you know, generations from now, like fans won't really know the full context of this year. And they'll just like be going down. They'll be like, oh, weird. Charlie Blackman hit four. If you're like, assuming it happens, like, oh, Charlie Blackman hit 400 that year. That's crazy. And like they won't know that it was actually a 60 game season. It's just like kind of one of those, you know, potential quirks that I'm very, very, very much rooting for. Before we get to the dirty math, I want to share um, maybe one of my favorite stats on the young season, uh, tweeted by Jason Stark earlier today. Um, Charlie Blackman this year has 34 hits. Um, all Cleveland Indians outfielders combined have 25 hits. So that tells you a little. could have seen that coming. <laughs> We've, we've been ranting about that for years that they never try to upgrade their outfield. That tells you a little bit about how good Charlie Blackman has been um, and how bad uh, the Indians outfield has been. Another uh, one of, uh, anecdote I enjoyed about this is that yesterday on MLB Instagram, there was a, a post about uh, Charlie Blackman's insane start. And in the comments was a comment from Julio Borbone, the, the former um, 
I guess Rangers outfielder. I think he played for a couple other teams. I know. I think he was drafted by the Rangers, and he said something like, "I can't believe this guy. I played with him on the Cape Cape Cod League, and he was a pitcher." Um, which is true. Charlie Blackman was a, a pitcher for, for, for much of his college career. And obviously uh, the pitching thing didn't work out, but uh, the hitting thing uh, sure has. Yeah. In retrospect, I think we all made a mistake because at the beginning of the season, you know, the, the topic of could someone hit 400 came up, who could do it? Right. And I think we all sort of gravitated towards these high contact, like fast guys who would beat out infield hits. So like Jose Altuve, uh, Luisa Rise was actually off to kind of a terrible start. And in retrospect, a huge miss by all of us. Of course, it was going to be someone who played for Colorado, right? Like there's this sort of a myth that what Coors Field does is to just like make a thousand homers happen. And it's not really true. Uh, the outfield is so big that what happens is you just get a ton of hits because the outfielders can't cover all that ground. The Rockies have been around for 27 seasons and they have won 11 batting average titles, right? That's like more than a third in that time. And it's been eight different guys. Uh, it's kind of a fun list. Todd Walker, three times. Helton, Galarraga, Holiday, Carlos Gonzalez, LeMahieu, Kadire, and Charlie Blackman, once a piece. I, you, said, I, you, said, you said Todd Walker. I want to correct you. It was Larry Walker. Oh, sorry. You know, <laughs> I, I, was lived like, in wait, I was like, wait, what? Todd Walker? What? You know, you know what? I lived in Boston when the Red Sox broke the curse in 2004. I think he might have only been there for 2003. But yeah, you're right. Thank you for correcting me. Todd Helton, Larry Walker, all those guys. But anyway, eight guys have won 11 batting average titles in 27 years. Did you know the Dodgers haven't had a batting average winner since 1963? And the Phillies haven't had one? since Richie Ashburn in 1958. So while I don't want to say Charlie Blackman is only a good player because of course field, that's absolutely not true. He's a, he's a very good player. Uh, we should have always, if we were going to guess who was going to hit 400, of course it should have been someone who played in Colorado. Like literally, of course, over the, the last 10 years, since 2010, the Rockies as a team have the highest batting average in baseball uh, at home, 299. So that's first by 18 points over the Red Sox. And on the road, they have the lowest average in baseball, 236, 30th by five points behind San Diego. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people know about kind of the course field hangover effect. Anyway, this year, Charlie Blackman hitting pretty well on the road, 438. That's very good. Charlie Blackman at home, 556, which is borderline obscene. Um, hilariously, he actually got off to a slow start to the year. They went to Texas and he went one for 12. So you can tell he's on a little bit of a hot streak right now. Um, yeah, but the thing is, what's good, what's, what's, what works in his favor is right now they've actually played a fairly balanced schedule. So they have nine home games and eight road games. So they've, you know, only one fewer home game the rest of the way. So like, you know, this hasn't, this, this hot start has not been entirely a course field creation. So that's like a, a, a point in his, in his favor. Yes, for sure. Although I will point out they have not played the Dodgers yet, right? The Dodgers have a very good pitching staff, but let's, let's get into the numbers here, right? So he is hitting again, this is before Wednesday's day game. Uh, 500, 527, 721. So 34 hits and 68 plate appearances. In order to qualify this year, usually you need 502 plate appearances. That's 3.1 per game. Uh, there are many fewer games this year. So you need to get to 186 plate appearances. That's only 118 more for him. If you can believe that, the season's like a third of the way over already. The Rockies are 12 and 5. They have 43 games remaining. So he would need 2.7 plate appearances a game just to qualify. That is easily obtainable, but there is a, a big if on that that I'll get back to in a second. What I wanted to know is what he would need to do to get up to that qualification mark, and could he do it? So career, for his career, about 91% of his plate appearances are at-bats, obviously walks and other stuff. So 
of 118 remaining plate appearances, let's say 107 of them are at bats. And if he had 169 total at bats and he got 68 hits, he'd hit 402. Great. So because of this head start, he's actually halfway there. He would only need to get another 34 hits. It is next 101 at bats. That's hitting 337. He hit 331 in 2017. So he could easily do that, right? Here's the big but. That is if the goal is to get to the minimum necessary to qualify, right? Like I said, 2.7 plate appearances a game, but that's not going to happen, is it, right? Like the Rockies are in the race. I know he's going to get a day off here and there, sure. Uh, But if he plays every day, he's getting to like, I don't know, 230, 240 plate appearances. We did some of this math in a story uh, on MLB.com, actually, which is is a good segue. And so, yes, I mean, they've got 43 games left, right? So... Let's assume he'll get a couple days off against tough lefties. Let's assume he stays healthy and he'll get a couple days off. So that's 41, 41 games, back of the napkin, four at bats a game, right? So that's actually, I think that's that's like probably the 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 probably more likely is 164 at, at bats essentially. So if he has 164 at bats, he needs 50. He needs to get 59 hits in that span, 360 to get above 400. So really, he needs to hit. I think more accurately, he needs to hit more like 360 the rest of the way to. Um, you know, and it's still an estimate, but like it's, I think if he's going to play every day, essentially he needs to hit around 360 the rest of the way to hit 400, which is totally within the, the, the realm of possibilities. Yeah. But, but wasn't the math in that story done before he went three for four yesterday though? Uh, no, we updated it overnight. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. But I, I really think the discrepancy here is going to be, does he get to the minimum and stop? Right. Or does he play every day and go 30 to 40 play appearances past it? They're going to play because they're, I mean, they're going to be in the, they're, they're pretty clearly at this point. I mean, like at 12 and five, they're going to be in the playoff hunt. So I think he's going to, I mean, I guess it's possible that, they, that they, you know, that's one of the things that's working in his favor is like it's possible that late in the season, if they're either like either they've clinched a spot like and they can't move up or down, um, whether that's one, two or out of the playoffs, that maybe they would sit him in that, in that, um, in that scenario. But I actually can't imagine that, you know, um, not I say, I shouldn't say I can't imagine, but my guess is he will end up playing you know, if he stays healthy, um, at minimum, like 39 more games. Yeah. I don't think he's actually going to get 400. Um, I, I don't, I just don't think he will. I, I think well, it's the tango, the Tom tango, essentially production is a 10% chance. He says he has like a, 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 you know, assuming that Charlie Blackman's true talent level is a three ten hitter, like essentially, which is what, you know, fan graphs projections for the rest of the season, which and basically what he's hit over the last three years combined. If he's, if his true talent level is three ten, the chances of a true talent, talent level, 310 hitter hitting 360 over a 40 game span is basically a 10% chance, which is, you know, depending how you look at it, it seems really low, but then the flip side, you know, like that's basically the same as like what like peak Mark McGuire hit a home run in 10% of his, his plate appearances, you know? So like, and when Mark McGuire came up at his peak, you kind of expected him to hit a home run. So 10%, depending on how you want to look at it, you could say like, Oh, maybe that's not so crazy. Um, it's, it's, a, it's to me, it's like just one of the really fun storylines to follow the season. Yeah. And, and if he does, by the way, I, I would think it's cool and I'd be glad it was him because he's a very good hitter and has been for a long time. If it would be weirder if it was, you know, I don't know, uh, like Rene Rivera, right. Or, or Billy Hamilton or someone like that, you know, like great. If it's Blackman, great. He, he has been a star. Um, or Donovan Delano who's hitting 450. <laughs> that's a, that's another topic entirely, which I feel like we're going to actually have to get into at some point soon. Uh, two other Rockies things before we move on. Nick Groke of the athletic, Talked to Nolan Arenado yesterday, and Arenado gave what is maybe my favorite quote of the year already. He said, there are times I'd rather strike out than roll one over to third. I'd rather strike out with my A swing than just put my D swing on a ball and roll it into the ground so I don't strike out. 
hashtag D swing, I guess, because that's kind of a fun thing to say. Uh, and I love that, right? Like we, we have talked about that a lot over the years, which is, you know, it's better to live to fight another day. It's like making contact is great when it's good contact, but you know, there's no, there's no valor in grounding out to third base. You know, you'd rather strike out a little more and pound the ball. And I love that Nolan Otto is, uh, is saying that. The other thing is Daniel Bard, who is pitching for the Rockies right now. Uh, if you don't know his story, he was, you know, in the early part of the, the I guess about 10 years ago now, uh, he was a pretty good reliever for the Red Sox. And then he just lost the ability to throw strikes entirely. He tried to come back several times. It never worked. And he last appeared in a major league game in 2013. He'd actually spent the last couple of years as a mental skills coach for the Diamondbacks. Tried one more time to come back this year, signed with the Rockies. He now has 12 strikeouts and zero walks, which I think is just the coolest thing. Like, it's cool that he's back at all. But the fact that he has not yet walked anybody after what sent him out of the big leagues in the first place uh, is a really it's it's a super cool story. And yeah, on, on, if, on, on Tuesday night, he actually came, the, in the, uh, where Blackman went three for four to raise his average to 500. The, the Rockies were up 8-2 going into the ninth, and they gave up five runs. It was a classic course Field game. Um, and Bard came in and, and struck out Stephen Boat looking to get the um, to get the final out. It was his first save, I think, since 2000. I want to say since 2011. Yes, um, 2011. So it was, uh, it was pretty cool. And as you said, the fact that he has 12 strikeouts and zero walks for a guy who basically had the yips is, uh, is, is just – is remarkable. I actually, when I, when I worked uh, at, at Baseball America in North Carolina, in Durham, North Carolina, in, in the early, you know, 2005, 2007 range, he was, he was pitching for the university of North Carolina at the time, him and uh, Andrew Miller were teammates. So like, you could like go to watch Carolina play anytime. And you'd see like one of the top 10 prospects that year. It was pretty cool. And like watching him pitch, it was like, you know, one of my first exposure to watching like, like elite, you know, amateur pitchers. And I think I, it was like I'd never seen someone throw like 98 miles an hour so effortlessly. So I've always just like really enjoyed watching Daniel Bard pitch, uh, particularly early in his career. And it was such a shame that he kind of fell apart like that. So him coming back and pitching and pitching the way he has is really just just a, a remarkable story. Yeah, it's, it's extremely cool. Uh, now that we have dedicated our entire opening segment to the Colorado Rockies, let's move on to our three batter minimum, where we're going to have some uh, three interesting topics. And the first one is, have you noticed the Padres – because if you haven't, you should definitely be watching the Padres. The NL West has turned out to be kind of fascinating. The Rockies are 12-5. and five. The Dodgers and Padres are tied for second at 11-7. and seven. Uh, The Giants are rebuilding as we expected, and the Diamondbacks have just been a complete disaster. But the Padres are you know good and entertaining, and there are so many guys on that roster that if you know Matt or myself at all, like the, there are just guys on that team we have loved. I just realized... Um, Matt, I'm surprised that, you know, you didn't give me a pink slip this morning. I wrote like 1500 words on the Padres yesterday and didn't mention Luis Perdomo. Uh, I, I apologize. Admittedly, he has not been a huge part of their success. Although when they beat the Dodgers the other night, he did start the game and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> well, yeah, he started, <laughs> he started the right. game. They gave up one run and they won. That's all. That, those are facts. Those are facts. <laughs> so, yeah, the Padres are, are so much fun right now. I mean, and any discussion of the Padres, has to start, well, let's be straight. It has to be start with the brown uniforms because they're fantastic and phenomenal. But obviously, Fernando Tatis, who has gone past, I guess, being like a uh, breakout young star as he was last year and sort of elevated himself into, you know, superstardom, like you're you're watching a breakout happen. Uh, he, I guess, Judge Homer well, last there, night. There but... was, I mean, there was like a little bit of, you know, reason for, I, I mean, not skepticism with him, but like, I mean, last year he was so good before he got hurt. 
and there was just a little bit of just like you know his strikeout weight was really high and like he had a crazy high batting average on balls in play so there was like a little bit of just like you know okay he's good is he really super duper star good or just good that was like kind of like of course he was a rookie too so you don't want to put you know too much stock into to um to to anything but like you know for example his his, his weighted on base was 398 which is like you know elite you know high and but his expected weight on base based on quality of contact was 348 so that's a big gap which suggests like okay he's good but like with those strikeouts maybe like he's got some work to do well this year it no it just looks like he's a superstar <laughs> Yeah, and don't forget, he was, despite the highlight plays, he was actually a pretty weak shortstop last year. You know, I I don't remember the exact stat I found, but he played like the 27th most innings at shortstop and had the most throwing errors in all of baseball, I think. Like, obviously, the the talent was there, uh, but he'd made a lot of silly mistakes. And so far this year, no throwing errors, right? So that is a little bit more confidence that you can play at shortstop. But yeah, just the way he's crushing the ball is ridiculous. He leads the majors in hard hit rate I remember he's a 21 year old shortstop and he leads the majors in hard hit rate. Uh, he's in the top 10 in sprint speed, which is the Statcast running speed metric. Uh, he was tied uh, entering yesterday with Aaron Judge for the most homers in baseball. Though I think Judge homered last night, you know, to take a little bit of a lead. And you know, we can go through all the numbers with him, but uh, I don't know. It feels like more of a phenomenon, really. Like just reciting the numbers doesn't necessarily do him service because he. I hate to say this for White Sox fans, because if you remember that trade, it's going to haunt your dreams forever. <laughs> but man, he's he is the capital letters next big thing, right? Like I'm all in and he's just so fun. Like that's what it is, right? He's a great player and he's immensely entertaining. And like, you know, we, the, the term five tool player gets thrown around a lot and often, you know, like inaccurately, because a lot of time players who are called five tool players, like don't necessarily have all five tools. It's been, often it's like, you know, throwing arm or actually their fielding range isn't as good as you think. Like, this is like what a five tool player like really looks like. And like, he's not just like, Oh, well slightly above average. He's basically like elite, no matter where you look. And it's just, it's, uh, and then, you know, not to mention with like the, <laughs> the bleach blonde braids and the brown uniforms, he just has this, like this, this, this look and this, like this star power when he's on the field. That's just, it's, uh, it's fantastic. He is a, a capital letter dude. And he makes me very happy to watch the Padres. You know, it's not just him, right? The Padres right now, as we sit here, lead the majors in stolen bases with 21 and they lead the majors in slugging percentage at 466. And they are tied for the major league lead in home runs at 32, right? They're tied with the angels right now. I found that really interesting to lead the majors in slugging and steals. And so uh, I went and looked this up with the friend, with the help of our colleague here, Jason Bernard, I wanted to know, over a full season, how many teams led the majors both in steals and slugging percentage? And I didn't think it would have happened that many times, and it didn't. But I also didn't expect I was going to have to go back to the 1950s to find the last team. This has only happened seven times, right? The Dodgers did it three times in 1949, 53, and 55. And those are like all-time legendary teams, right? Duke Snyder, Jackie Robinson, Gil Hodges, like those kind of things. I've heard of these people. Yeah, they're good. <laughs> The Yankees of the 1930s did it three times in 1930, 31, and 38. You may recognize such names as Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. Uh, and then also the 1925 Pirates did it. And I mean, Pie Trainer, uh, a couple other Hall of Famers were on those teams. I'm not saying the Padres will do this. I'm not saying we will view it in the same way if they do it over 60 games. But that would be a fun thing to do. Like that kind of power speed combination. I guess that sort of goes back to fun because 
those things are very fun to watch. And, uh, you know, it's not just Tatis, right? Like, even though, you know, Fam hasn't been that great and Hosmer's missed part of the season, like you've got all these other guys like Jake Cronenworth is crushing the ball. Do you even know who that is? Most people don't. They got him in a trade from Tampa Bay. Uh, Will Myers, of all people, is crushing the ball, you know, and my my favorite Trent Christian, well, I'll get to in a second. But yeah, this this team is winning in ways and slugging and stealing in ways that we kind of haven't seen in a very long time. Yeah, it's it's uh, I don't know. I mean, like it's the it's the definition of fun. They do everything, you know. I think you also you mentioned Grisham. He's kind of this, another dynamic player. They throw the ball really hard. They have the highest four team velocity of any team in baseball right now, which is not something that you would have expected coming into the year. The other day, um, this was a great find by our colleague David Adler. They had um, two separate strikeouts with a strikeout pitch was 100, 100 plus miles per hour by two different pitchers. Um, one was Denelson LeMay, one of the best, one of the most exciting young pitchers a lot of people don't know about. The other was by Luis Patino in relief, who was just called up, another flame-throwing prospect. Um, it was the first team since the 2007, 2017 Yankees with a role as Chapman and Dylan Patanzas to have two different pitchers have a strikeout at 100 miles per hour plus in the same game. So this team has a little bit of uh, a little bit of everything. Yeah. Do you remember over the winter where they gave Drew Pomerantz a four-year contract and people were like, wait a minute, the, the same Drew Pomerantz who had a six ERA in 2018 and then a 568 ERA for the Giants in 2019 and a bad Giants rotation dropped him out of the rotation and they gave him four years because in a very small sample, he'd gone to Milwaukee and been kind of a dominant reliever uh, just because he'd struck out 50 guys and 106 batters and all the underlying metrics were there, right? The velocity ticked up. Uh, the pitch movement numbers are great. He stopped throwing his bad pitches, which you shouldn't think it would be that simple. Uh, and yes, it is. He, in his first eight, eight appearances, struck out 10, no earned runs, no runs of any kind. And it's actually been a big deal because Kirby Yates hasn't actually been um, that great. But I do just want to touch real quick on Trent Grisham who uh, they got from Milwaukee. I think most people may have remembered him as the guy who made that error in the wild card game that sort of started, kick-started the uh, Washington run towards the World Series. I tried over the winter to, you know, hack together some silly way to find a, a breakout player based on minor league power and plate discipline numbers, and he popped. And so far, he's got a top 10 walk rate, a top 10 chase rate, slugging over 500, and the defense has been shockingly good. Right. And he's only 23 years old. Like, I think a lot of Padres fans, at least the ones I saw on social media, hated that trade because they really liked to hug the idea of Luis Arias, who's an infielder without any power. I liked it for the Padres because I think Grisham's going to be a dude. And, you know, we could probably spend like an entire hour on the Padres. We haven't talked about Chris Paddock yet. Right. We haven't talked about Garrett Richards' uh, best in baseball curveball movement. And, we maybe will have to talk about Eric Hosmer if he keeps doing what he's doing, but he just hasn't played that enough. Anyway, the Padres are super fun. Much as I respect the idea of the regional schedule this year, I would really love it if they could play outside the West Coast for a minute just so I could watch more of their games. But I really think we're going to end up with some sort of first round playoff matchup where it's like, uh, I don't know, Padres versus Braves, you know, Reds, something like that. I don't know how it's going to work out, but that, that is going to be a fun playoff series to watch. For sure. Um, and I mean, they, you know, they went into Dodger Stadium this week and it looked like, you know, oh, like this, maybe this is where the Dodgers like can start to, I, I mean, the Dodgers are the most talented team in that division, six game season, who knows what's going to happen. And the, the Padres went in and won the first two games of the series in like a pretty impressive fashion. And, you know, it's, uh, it's good to see them kind of like, you know, after many years of trying to kind of maybe go toe to toe with the Dodgers a little bit and maybe more happening a little sooner than maybe we expected. 
All right, topic two. Randy Dobnak has the lowest ERA in Major League history. Matt can confirm via Zoom call yesterday that I had the full Randy Dobnak handlebar mustache going. And um, I hope you appreciated it because I'm not entirely sure that my wife did. But it was great. I enjoyed it very much. Randy Dobnak, pitcher for the Minnesota Twins, has a 130 ERA in 48 and a third career innings. If you set the minimum innings to an obscenely low 40 over the course of Major League history, nearly 5,800 pitchers qualify. And he has the lowest ERA um, going back to 1901. Obviously, that is a very silly leaderboard, but I like it. Can I just read you some of the other names on this list? Uh, These are obviously dead ball era names, and they're very funny. Ed Walsh. Okay, fine. Addie Joss. Jack Fister. Joe Wood. Mordecai Three Finger Brown. And I made sure this went to seven just because I wanted to say this name. Buttons Briggs. Buttons Briggs. Uh, Randy Dobnak has one home run allowed in 194 career batters faced. Seven pitchers allowed more than one home run yesterday. So that tells you a little something about Randy Dobnak. It's all about the sinker, right? The ground balls. He gets seven inches of extra sink on his sinker at his velocity, which is second most in baseball behind only Aaron Bummer, which is also a great baseball name. What do you think about the Twins? So the, what would they do without Randy Dobnak? Uh, they are off to an 11-7 and seven start, even though Mitch Garver has been terrible. Miguel Sano has been terrible. Luis Arise has been terrible. And Josh Donaldson has been hurt. Jake Odorizzi and Homer Bailey and Rich Hill have all made one start apiece. Uh, Jose Barrios, 531 ERA, and Michael Pineda suspended. The Twins have been good, but just not in the way I would have expected, I think. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, I mean, they started I mean, they started out, like, really, they were dominant for, like, the first 10 days of the season, and they've scuffled a little bit. The, the starting pitching is, you know, there was always questions, even with some of the acquisitions they made, you know, like... Um, well, has been good. Kentamaya has been very good. Yes, but like you know, even some of the acquisitions they made, right? Like you know, yes, Rich Hill is good when he's healthy, but he's never healthy, and it's that's the Rich Hill experience has continued to be the Rich Hill experience. Like how can you know when you require Rich Hill, you can't, you're not going to expect him to make you know make you know every start. And like yeah, Homer Bailey was good last year, but you know, okay, like are you really are you really counting on Homer Bailey? So um, I feel like at some point everyone's kind of expected like Berrios to kind of take that leap into the next you know, plateau of, of pitchers and he'll show it for stretches, but it never has felt like it's come together for an extended, an extended period. Yeah. It's just fun to think, what would they have done without Randy Dobnak? You know, <laughs> like, like everybody knows him as the Uber driver in the off season. And I, I hope that's not true anymore. I hope they know him as this guy who is actually like become a quality major league pitcher. All right. On to our third topic here. The worst ways to lose a ball game. If you didn't watch the Baltimore Philadelphia game last night, wow! The Orioles, beat, yeah, the Orioles beat the Phillies ten to nine, and that barely tells the stories. The Phillies were up three nothing after five innings. Okay, fine, big deal. Baltimore scores five over the next two innings to take a five three lead. Then Philly goes up six three in the eighth. Six five. Then they go up six five in the eighth. Six, excuse me, six five, and then Baltimore uh, ties it up, and then Philly scores two in the bottom of the ninth, and Baltimore goes up two in the top of the tenth. And then Philly scores one in the bottom to make it 10-9. And finally, with runners on second and third, Reese Hoskins grounds out to end the game. By the way, Reese Hoskins, a 211-423-263 line, a 25% walk rate, great. Two extra base hits. Ugh. But that's neither here nor there. Let me point out that you, you, you also like glossed over a couple of facts. Yes. No, no, no. I was getting to that point. I, I, this is like the top level review. But please, please continue. I was going to say, because actually, I was, I was I was following a little bit along on Twitter of the game because the Orioles were up. I was like, oh, the Orioles are going to win again. And then the Phillies came back and took the lead thanks to a Bryce Harper homer and a Gene Segura uh, homer. I was like, okay, well, the Phillies are going to win. And then the next thing I know, 
the Orioles were up eight six in in the, in the top of the ninth, and I'm like, wait, how did that happen? And I went and looked, and it was they tied the game at six, and then uh, a pop up was hit. I can't remember who hit it, an infield pop up, and Segura and Hoskins basically converged at the mound, and were like the Segura the third baseman and Hoskins the first baseman, like you got it, no, I got it, you got it, no, I got it, and of course the ball dropped. And Pedro Severino hit that. Okay, Severino hit it. And then of course Pedro Severino had it. And then of course, uh, so the, the Orioles take an eight-six lead. Then they get then they get the first two outs of the uh, ninth inning, only to squander the lead in the ninth with Philly coming back and scoring two runs to tie the game at eight. So we go to the we go to the tenth, tied at tied at eight. You have the automatic runner on second base. Austin Hayes leads off for the Orioles. He hits a line drive to center field. Philly center fielder Roman Quinn dives for it, misses it. The ball goes all the way to the wall, and it is an inside-the-park home run uh, to give the Orioles a 10-8 lead before the, the the Phillies subsequently. They get to start with a runner on second as well, and they're half of the inning. The Phillies get a leadoff single from Jay Bruce. Then they get second and third with one out. They cannot get the run home to tie the game. Um, it was an absolutely – it was one of those games that would have been an absolute gut-wrenching loss for whoever lost the game because they both can claim, like, oh, we totally should have won that game. And uh, it was the the upstart Orioles, uh, and I'll admit they kept putting in relievers who I legitimately had never heard of um, into the game, and the Orioles ended up winning the game again. And it led to a conversation I had with Will Leach uh, on email uh, earlier this morning of like, what is the worst way to lose a baseball game? Because this sure felt like the worst way to lose a baseball game. And Will, um, to his credit, came up with it. He, he focused on how to lose off, lose in a walk-off fashion. And he came up with a list of seven, the seven worst ways to lose um, a game. And here's his list. And I want to know what your take is of what you think the worst way to lose a game is. His list is... is, is wait, is this is this an ordered list? Like, did he rank these? From he did not the rank them. He just sort of okay. like, it was a, a potpourri of just terrible ways to um, lose a game. Okay. Um, let's see. He had uh, walk-off balk. Walk-off uh, balk? Oh, uh, unassisted triple play, which happened a few years ago um, when Jeff Francoeur hit into an unassisted triple play against the Phillies um, to give, uh, uh, I think it was like 2009. I watched the video this morning. It was actually Daniel Murphy was the the runner who got tagged out um, running from first to second because um, the runners were, it was like a 3-2 pitch and the runners were going. Um, a dropped pop-up, which was came into play um, last night. There was also a famous one a couple years ago with Alex Bregman um, where he popped one up, and the the the, the uh, Padres infield just let it drop, and the run scored. Um, the next example he thought of was a, a walk off catcher's interference, which actually happened um, in the mid nineties. I don't know if you remember this; it happened with the Dodgers, where um, the Pirates catcher at the time it was not the tr- traditional catcher's interference, where the, the bat hits the glove. The it was a ball in the dirt, and the catcher took off his mask, and then he scooped the ball up with his mask, which apparently is interference. <laughs> And Tommy Lasorda came out and argued and said that's interference. The run should score, and the um, the umpires like converged and talked about it. And sure enough, the they, the runner from third was allowed to score and win the game for the Dodgers, which is just wild. Um, another example wait, of the wait, game wait, was wait, Homer- wait, 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 wait. I do remember that one. That's one of the most famous games in 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 baseball. Do you remember why? Why? Because it wasn't just that's how they lost. It was it was. Uh, I think was that the when they threw the souvenir baseballs on the field. Like no, the fans, right? You're, you're, you're missing a game. That was another. That was another one from. Ugh. That was like the tw- the 25 anniversary was like this week, but Maybe it was different. It was, di- it, was di- it was against the Cardinals. It was a different game. I don't remember the exact yeah, okay. circumstances, but it was a it was a different it was a different game. Right. Um, so anyway, so in a couple of the games he did was 
hit a home run but forget to touch home plate, which actually happened to Alberto Mondesi in the in the minors a few years ago. Um, the inside the park grand slam walk off, which apparently Roberto Clemente is the only player in baseball uh, history to do this. And the last one he referred to was what he called the Bregman, which is kind of hard to describe. You may have to go on to find Will's piece and read it, which was basically like Alex Bregman hit a dribbler in front of the home plate in front of home plate with the base loaded a couple years ago. And um, it was unclear if it was foul or fair. And he sort of started to walk towards first and then the ball was fair foul. And then it kind of rolled fair again. So he started to, then he finally decided to sort of start going towards first base. The catcher picked it up, tried to like reach out and tagged him. Didn't get the tag. It was like, okay, I'm just going to throw it to first base and get him out. Throws it wild down the line two runs score and the Astros win. So um, that was Will's uh, very creative list. What do you think the worst way to lose a baseball game is? Well, those are, those are all grim, by the way. Um, I was, I, I, while you're doing this, I was just, just Googling to see if, if there was another thing that we, you know, I know Will did this quickly, right? Um, I found this hardball times piece from a couple years ago. <laughs> this, this didn't necessarily lose the game, but in 1976, uh, the Yankees were winning nine, six in the bottom of the ninth and Don money came up and hit a game tying home run game winning home run. I can't really tell from this write up, but apparently fraction of a second before the pitch was thrown the first base umpire had called time <laughs> and so so they called back the home run uh, and obviously he did not then hit a second home run and they lost that game so <laughs> that's a gut punch um of these i think the one that i would eliminate right away is the uh is the unassisted triple play because that's like an objectively cool thing to do you know it's like oh that that stinks but okay that guy did something awesome i think the one that hurts the most is maybe hitting the walk-off home run and then not touching the plate because that's the most ridiculous. Although I got to say, a walk-off balk is is maybe the worst thing to watch. I mean, walk-off walks happen a couple of times a year and those are bad, um, but a, a walk-off balk, oh God, it's got to be that. I See, I'm, I'm going to go, speaking from experience as a as a, uh, as a a a Mets fan who lived through the Luis Castillo drop pop-up against the Yankees a few years ago where like, the Mets were up 8-7. The Yankees had runners on first and third. Uh, it was Mark Teixeira on first. And A-Rod hit this really high pop-up to second base. It would have been the last out. And um, Teixeira never stopped running, and Castillo dropped it, and the, the Yankees won 9-8. The reason why the drop pop-up, well, I will say the drop pop-up is the most is the most painful, is that um, it you can see it happening. Like, as, a, you can, as a, you're watching, you suddenly, you see that you see the fielder and you see them struggling. You're like, oh, because major league pop-ups are actually kind of hard to catch, ones that are really high. And you, sometimes you see them where they kind of are like, the, the glove is waving a little bit, and you actually start to, you can you can start to see like, oh, this, this is going to happen. Like, you know, like it's not like a, an unassisted AAA that happens so quickly or walk-off balk, you don't have the time to prepare for it. Like the Luis Castillo play, I think that all Mets fans watching and the Mets dugout watching knew like, a half a second before he dropped it, that he was going to drop it. And that sort of like adds an extra layer of, uh, of pain to that, to that moment. So that's why it's a little more straightforward than some of these, but that's why I think that is the most painful way to lose a game. Cause I also just found another one as, as we were talking before we get to Keegan here in 2005, the Royals were playing the Indians and in the top of the ninth, the Indians were losing seven to two and the Indians scored 11 runs. <laughs> to a 13 7 that's not a moment i guess that's just like a slow motion uh train wreck that's that's got to be a pretty bad way to lose i like this list i i, I found this entertaining um you should definitely check out will's piece all right we'll be back in just a moment with keegan matheson to talk about what is going on with toronto blue jays 
we are back with our friend Keegan Matheson of MLB.com. Keegan is our Blue Jays beat writer, and I don't imagine we have very many beat writers on the team this year who have a more interesting team to cover. The Blue Jays obviously are not playing in Toronto, and after uh, an extended, let's see, 13-game road trip to start the season, the Blue Jays finally went to Buffalo yesterday, where they won uh, 5-4 in a walk-off over the Miami Marlins. And Keegan, you know, from what I can tell, the the Blue Jays and their organization put a ton of work into updating the field in Buffalo. And just from the pictures I saw and from what I saw on television, it feels like they did a really good job, right? Like that actually seemed like a, a quality, you know, working environment for a major league team. And in such a short amount of time, guys, it's uh, it's fascinating how much work can get done uh, with one team focused on it like that. And what you notice first is just visually, you know, the, the entire color scheme of the stadium has changed. Uh, the Buffalo Bisons are a more of a red based team and the Blue Jays, of course, ha- have redesigned everything in there. You're not just talking about clubhouses and, and weight rooms, but the front lobby where the players come in, the tunnels, uh, down to those fine little touches. Um, everything has been gone over and how they've expanded the space there. Um, I, I think Fenway Park in Boston is a bit of a good example working off of that, where some of the confines are a little tighter. So they had to make make use of a lot of the hallways, a lot of the underground areas for expanded locker space, using some concourses for batting cages and mounds and erecting a couple of large tents out in the outfield for, for visitors' confines as well. So a lot of imagination went into this, and you know, frankly, this is not something the teams are used to doing. There's not really a blueprint for this, so a lot of credit is due there, and it's uh, been really well received by the players, many of whom were a little wary, you know, especially some veteran guys, about going to a minor league park. Yeah, you, you you mentioned Fenway as a it's like sort of an archetype, but of course the, the Red Sox had years to prepare for this. The the Blue Jays had what like a matter of weeks. Yeah, just a couple of weeks, and this is a. A plan that's, uh, you know, goodness, thinking back over the last month, at at first Toronto was the ideal, then Dunedin was for a time, then it was Pittsburgh, then it was Baltimore. There were at least five options that they very seriously explored. And, you know, part of doing that is a big financial commitment as well. So you don't want to push that big red button and go until you're sure that this is where you're going to be playing out of. So they had people in Buffalo, they were ready to go when it was time, but that's a major decision. And to do it in this short amount of time, especially while you're working under the protocols too with the virus, so you're not exactly stacking 500 workers in the stadium working shoulder to shoulder, a lot of challenges, something that probably everyone involved is doing for the first time, such a unique project. And man, on the broadcast last night, uh, it's already a great AAA field. The folks there in Buffalo do a great job, but man, on the broadcast that looked... uh, I think a lot better than many of us expected, uh, you know, players and, and us as well. When I was thinking about the Blue Jays coming into this year, uh, one thing I was excited about, as I imagine a lot of people were, you know, that young lineup, right? You're like Bichette, Biggio, and, and Vlad Jr. and all of these guys. And so far, it hasn't really come together. Like if you look at uh, an advanced metric like WRC Plus here, they are the fourth weakest hitting team in baseball. And I know there's a lot more talent there than that, but what, you know, what's going on there? I like, guess the road trip affected them. Have they not been able to you know, take enough batting practice? Is it just a slow start? Like, what are you seeing with this? Yeah, the strange start is definitely a factor, but at the same time, we've seen other teams like the Miami Marlins, who they're playing in Buffalo right now, who have been off to strange starts of their own and still made it work. So that can't be the entire reason. The Blue Jays have been so aggressive at the plate, uh, swinging at a lot of first pitches and 
when they're getting aggressive like that, it really brings them out of their natural approach because guys like Vladdy, Bo Bichette, we talk about the amazing hard contact that they make at the plates and some of the things they can do with the bat. But what makes all of those guys special is that they set themselves up to do that with some patience. And that just plain has not been there for the Blue Jays. They are swinging at a lot. They're striking out a ton. And the second someone gets on base, it's a completely different ballgame for them. You know, Bo Bichette's home run in the opener there yesterday on Tuesday, that was the first multi-run home run since opening day for the Blue Jays. They'd hit 14 solo home runs in a row, which is – on one hand, good, you're hitting 14, but man, it's tough uh, to extend a lead or to get away from a team when you're just hitting solo shots. That's why they've been in so many close ball games, and a lot of it is just fundamentals. It's a, a team that is young and very evidently young. Uh, I think they came up, and last year was filled with so much optimism, even through the losing for the Blue Jays, but this year, now that that switches to competing, it's not about development and having a good time. It's about competing, getting some wins in there. Uh, you start to see that uh, that last jump they need to make is what Charlie Montoyo calls it, that jump where fundamentals uh, are not holding you back, where you, you know, even if you lose, you're still playing a good, complete game. Each loss the Jays have had this year, you can look back on a couple of plays, a couple of at-bats and say, yeah, that was a, that was a rookie at the plate or that was a young guy at the plate. You know, what we talked last in our last podcast about Vlad Guerrero and sort of like seems to be struggling and it, it hasn't gotten better in the last week. You don't want to say like, oh, you're worried, write the guy off. But like, what's the the feeling around like, you know, around the team about Vlad and his struggles, why he's struggling? And are people, do you think, around the club starting to get at all concerned that he hasn't really clicked yet at the major league level? There's not a lot of outward concern uh, from those with the Blue Jays or his teammates either. The general consensus seems to be, hey, this is still Vladimir Guerrero Jr. This is still the guy that lit the minor leagues on fire. He'll be fine. But at the same time, this is a short season where slumping for a couple of weeks is all of a sudden a big portion of your year. So there can't be as much patience, I don't think. And the story really of spring training, guys, and going into this year, was Vladdy's launch angle. It was a 6.7 last year. Uh, going into today, it's a 5.9 on average. And he is not Billy Hamilton exactly on the basis. So he needs to get that ball in the air. Uh, he needs to be driving the baseball. But he hasn't looked like himself. In the minor leagues, Vladdy was in charge of the at-bat. The pitchers were participating uh, sometimes as a supporting actor in those. And that hasn't really happened this year. He's been falling behind. He's been expanding the zone at times. And when he swings, it's not coming from that same place of power that it was in the past. And the incredible strength he has in his upper legs through his core and the way he uses his size to his advantage, that's where that incredible power comes from. You know, He should be a guy with one of the higher average exit velocities in this league. But when you watch him this year, he's getting out on his toes a lot. He is off balance and kind of losing that lower body power where he has so much to give. And even when he's making contact, you're seeing a lot of it way out on the end of the bat. So not really extending the arms. And that's what he and the hitting coach Guillermo Martinez are focused on. Getting some extension, getting it on the barrel of the bat, because everything right now seems to be jamming him inside or he's catching it on the end of the bat outside. And he doesn't seem to be dictating the at-bats, which is strange and it's got to be strange for him as well because he has dominated every level of baseball from surely when he was five years old right up through triple a 
all of a sudden you're struggling for the first time in the major leagues. That's uh, not easy because big league pictures can make those adjustments a little quicker. When I was thinking about the weak spot, maybe for this team entering the season, first place I went to was probably the bullpen, right? And then Ken Giles got hurt and Sean Yamaguchi hasn't been terribly impressive so far. And so that kind of made a weak spot even worse. But I've been pretty impressed by Jordan Romano, who I didn't look it up, but I believe, uh, confirming me if I'm wrong, is a Canadian native, right? Pitching for the Blue Jays, had been lost as a Rule 5 pick and then, then brought back. And now so far, eight innings, no runs, 11 strikeouts. And what I what I really like about him is I was reading about what he was doing in the offseason. And he basically is one of the umpteenth pitchers who are taking their best pitch and using it more, right? Like last year, he was primary four-seamer, you know, about 60-40 four-seamer slider, and now that's essentially reversed. He's throwing harder, and he has basically said, yeah, I, I have been working hard to increase my velocity. I've been using the technology, and I just love seeing a guy who, you know, is not was never really like a highly regarded prospect kind of take a big step here because you have a good pitch. Well, why not use it? You don't have to establish that fastball anymore, right? Yeah, he's been amazing, Romano out of the bullpen. And this is what, frankly, every team dreams of because so many organizations have Jordan Romano's in their system where it's a guy that you see the talent, but there's just one more step that has to happen, and it so rarely does. But Romano this year, uh, the big difference for him in the offseason, he says, is that he gave up on the changeup. He has always been trying to learn a changeup like every pitcher. You try to get a changeup in the offseason. And this year he said, hey, my fastball and slider are good. Let's see where they go. And he bulked up. He's added velocity. The slider looks so much better. And he showed flashes of this last year in his debut, but then it faded very quickly. But this looks like something that he can sustain and just such an incredible development story for him. I mean, he was a 10th rounder back in 2014 uh, as a reliever at uh, Oral Roberts. Uh, Came in and was a starter for the Blue Jays kind of a mid-level starter didn't really wow a lot of people but as he shortened back up and built back to this point really added that velocity and a a lot of its mindset as well he's got a a bit of a bulldog mentality on the mound now which has developed from last year you know there's still that nice Canadian in there but uh, he's uh, a little more revved up I think on that mound now perfectly suited for that eighth inning just about where the Blue Jays have him now and I wouldn't be surprised to see him get some save opportunities this year either. He's built for that ninth inning, and he's thrown eight hitless so far this season with 11 strikeouts. So he, there aren't many ways, frankly, where he could be better so far this season. He might be their most valuable uh, pitcher out of that bullpen and one of their best performing players uh, through this first couple of weeks. Uh, speaking of that bullpen, one name that jumped out to me in, in, in looking at the Blue Jays is A.J. Cole, who like was a – huge prospect for like years. I mean, it was like, a, like almost like a running joke that he was on, you know, top prospect list for like literally a decade. He was drafted in 2011, bounced around, was part of a couple big trades. I think he was traded to and from the Nationals twice. Then um, signed with the, um, the Blue Jays as a free agent. It seems to be kind of a similar thing where he's like now throwing his slider 60% of the time and he's been dominant out of the pen this year and kind of looks like the pitcher that people expected him to be. Like, you know, we're talking about, you know, seven or eight innings, but like um, – the pitcher that people expect him to be many years ago. Yeah, this is a good find by the Blue Jays. And this type of reliever, you know, finding guys on a a low one-year deal or a minor league deal, right-handers with a good fastball, that's kind of a little specialty, a bit of a niche for the Blue Jays these last few years. They've done well with these bullpen finds. And Cole absolutely looks the part. This is a huge dude on, on the mound, and he brings a lot with that slider, with that fastball. And, He's another guy who's pitched seven scoreless 
so far. You know, the Blue Jays bullpen has really pitched well on that back end and they've modernized it quickly. I think these last few years leading into 2020, the Blue Jays leaned on a lot of middle relievers, a lot of long guys throwing 91, 92 to eat innings, but there weren't really that many high leverage guys if you found yourself in a sticky spot in the sixth inning, for example. But now with someone like Cole, that stretches the bullpen so much for them. When you add in Romano and Dolis and Bass and the rest, Giles when he's healthy, they've suddenly added velocity right through that bullpen, which is something they were missing. They did trail behind on that, but he's definitely adding that slider a lot more compared to last year and kind of simplifying those pitches. And uh, Pete Walker, the Blue Jays pitching coach, uh, has a lot of good things to say about Cole and is a great weapon for Montoyo because, again, if you – have a couple of runners on in the fifth inning or sixth inning. You don't need to jump all the way to the back of your bullpen. And Cole has been uh, fantastic so far. Good value. Keegan, the Blue Jays are six and eight. And obviously, you know, nobody wants to be below 500. But when you consider all of the things that have happened to get to this point, obviously the, the home ballpark being the primary issue, but the offense not really getting going, like we said, losing a couple of their best, uh, well, they're losing their best reliever to injury. It, it, can six and eight kind of be viewed as a decent enough start given all that, like that it's not that hard to see things getting better? Because when I look at the American League right now, you know, at the top, the teams we thought would be very good are, right? The Yankees, the Twins and the A's and, you know, the teams that we didn't think would be that good are at the bottom, right? The Mariners and the Royals. And I personally am extremely out on Boston because I've seen them pitch. It doesn't seem out of the question that the Blue Jays can still get into like one of those seventh or eighth playoff spots right like I imagine that's still the goal for this year yeah that's fully on the table I I think the Blue Jays were one of the teams that benefited most from those extra playoff spots because going back before this back to I guess March which is 100 years ago now the Blue Jays were a team this year it looked like they would compete they'd be more fun to watch they would show that talent but it was probably about 2021 because you know, there weren't that many spots available, and they'd probably be on the outside just looking in. But the expanded playoffs, and plus a 60-game season, which opens up more possibilities, I think really favors them if they get hot, if they get on a run. And especially when you have Ryu and Nate Pearson at the top of your rotation, those are guys who can steal games. The Blue Jays have not had a game stealer in a while at the top of their rotation. So as long as this lineup can get going, I think that will give them a chance. But part of it just depends on what side you're looking at this from. So a lot of the fundamental errors, uh, base running errors, stuff that you don't want to see in in high school ball, let alone the majors, some of these very basic errors, are they just bad luck that they're piling up and they're going to go away? Or is it a sign of a longer learning curve this year? Now, the Blue Jays think it'll be a quick fix. And if it is, there's no reason they can't be involved in this. But they will be a team, I think, that needs to win over these next couple of weeks because down the stretch, I think it's 10 out of 19 games are against the New York Yankees. And that is not a fun place to be. That's where you're trying to break even, hoping and praying to break even. So they're going to need to get ahead before then, I think, and go on a run through this now because they have a a long stretch coming up without an off day and then a ton of baseball against the Yankees. So they've got to get a jump. One last question for you, Keegan, before you go. Last night, the Blue Jays, I believe since it was their first home game, they finally broke out the new um, powder blue uniforms. And I think a lot of teams, like the the powder blues have maybe gotten a little overdone in places, but I really like the Blue Jays look. It kind of feels like the powder blue with a modern twist, especially the caps are really sharp. 
is this going to become the default uniform? What's what's the what's the what's the status? They're going to wear it a, a bit more, I think. This is um, something that a lot of people love and a couple people hate, like any new uniform. But uh, I do like when a, a uniform is brought in and it's either got a retro angle to it or it's at least simple, you know, which this is both of. And you know, going back to those old powder blues the Blue Jays used to use uh, looked so slick. And and these are a good look too, I think. Um, you know, I'm I'm more of the the darker blue man myself. I, I need something more slimming, but uh, I, I like these powder blues, and I think the the players are all about them too, especially the young guys. Uh, they like the style, so it's uh, it always brings me back to the Canada Day Reds the Blue Jays would use. They kept losing in those Canada Day Reds, and uh, the players preferred not to wear them at one point i remember some uh, comments by ryan goins back in the day so maybe their record will determine how eager the guys are to wear these but um the fans love them i think certainly coming off the shelves here in toronto and uh so far so good from the players so one to know so far uh, we'll see what the uh, the new blue <laughs> record is for the blue jays no, Matt, I could not agree with you more on that. I, I think it's a little overplayed. I don't love the Texas ones that much, but these ones for the Blue Jays, I think, uh, are spectacular. Keegan Matheson, uh, BlueJays.com, thank you so much for spending a few minutes. This is one of the most interesting teams in the weirdest seasons I think you can ever imagine. So looking forward to seeing what you have to say for the rest of the year there. <laughs> interesting and weird is good for storytelling. Thank you, guys. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Our thanks to Keegan Matheson, our BlueJays.com beat reporter, for cluing us in on, uh, I guess, the Buffalo Blue Jays. Matt and I have a few more things to get to first, as we do each week. One fascinating player that you've never heard of for us. Now, never, I guess, depends on your point of view. If you are watching some of the farm systems very, very closely, then you've probably heard of all of these players. But I would imagine the casual fan has not heard of, drumroll please, Gregory Soto, left-handed reliever from the Tigers. This is Matt's guy. Please, Matt, educate us all about Gregory Soto and why he's interesting. Gregory Soto um, was originally signed by the um, by the Blue Jays. Sorry, the Blue Jays. Blue Jays still on the mind by the Tigers um, back in 2012. And when he debuted in the um, uh, in rookie ball in 2013, he walked almost a batter per inning in the Dominican Summer League. 8.7 walks per nine. Um, so the, the beginning of his career was not exactly promising. But right now, Gregory Gregory Soto, uh, oh so many years later, is uh, is is dominating like few relievers in baseball right now. He, he's a left-handed reliever, throws ninety-eight, and basically just goes fastball slider exclusively. And lefties who threw ninety-eight, there actually aren't that many of them. So his his stuff is electric. Um, you know, Mike uh, wrote about this that Joey Votto basically hadn't struck out for the first like two weeks of the season. Um, he only had one strikeout in his first eleven games. That one strikeout was at the hands of. Gregory Soto, um, he who has now made eight appearances this season with nine innings pitched and zero runs allowed, uh, and he has improved that walk rate. Um, this year, he's only walking three point two percent of batters while striking out almost thirty six percent of batters. Now, of course, the the Tigers are playing as we speak, as we record this, so it is possible that maybe these uh, numbers will have gotten blown up uh, at this point in time of the year. All it takes is one at one poor outing to, to blow up your ERA, but Soto, who is, um, who's 24 years old, uh, is I want us to say a big reason, but a, a, a key part of a, what has been a surprising, uh, Tigers team on this, uh, on this young season. You know, speaking of numbers that are likely to change, uh, because the Tigers are playing right now, 
The Tigers offense, would you believe this, has the highest hard hit rate in baseball. 46% of their battle balls are considered hard hit just above the Yankees. The Tigers? Really? Now, why aren't the Tigers an elite offense? They're not. Here's why. They have the highest strikeout rate in baseball. So they are really taking this to the extreme. They also have the fourth highest ground ball rate. So they are hitting the ball hard into the ground when they're not striking out, which I guess is why they have the 23rd best on base percentage. I can honestly say I didn't realize until I looked this up before. Jacoby Jones is off to a monster start. Totally. He's the fifth best weighted runs created plus in baseball 311 380 733 i just like that the tigers are interesting and i you know they're off to a decent start i think they were 500 ish last i looked and now i'm gonna have to go look that up because i honestly can't remember but um what i want them to do yeah nine and six look at that they're nine and six entering today they haven't called up you know casey mize yet or matt manning and there are reports that they might and you know what they should because the pitching has been really bad but if they do that, maybe they can stick around. And I think I would really enjoy seeing like an Oakland Detroit first round matchup, like a two seven. Of course, this is the year we need. To, we really want to see see Oakland advance the playoffs, or at least I do. So it'd be like so, especially heartbreaking if they finally like end up as the number one seed and end up playing like the Tigers or number eight seed, and the Tigers somehow well, beat them in a three game series. That, that's a really good point. But I I can confirm this. Uh, I guarantee this. The A's will not lose in a one-game wild card this year. I can absolutely confirm. You know, when we started doing this, this like random dude you've never heard of. That my joke was that Mike was always going to do, uh, you know, some random reliever. So I took the the random reliever um, uh, conceit this week. So Mike, who's your guy this week? I hope it's not a random reliever. It's not. It's a random corner infield slugger, uh, Edwin Rios, who is a left-handed you know, first base, third base type for the Dodgers, who is a sixth rounder in 2015 out of Florida International University, where he hit two home runs as a sophomore. Two. Well, in 2019, in the big leagues, he had an OPS of just over 1,000 in 56 plate appearances. I don't know if you remember this one home run he hit off of uh, the Padres. 113 miles an hour off the bat for 473 feet. Absolute blast. Now this year, only 28 plate appearances, fine. Uh, an OPS of 1,023 uh, with a really interesting line to get there. 211 average, eh. 286 on base, eh. 737 slugging. Um, last year in the minors, he had 31 home runs. Now he had a 575 slugging. And to be fair, in the PCL, that's a pretty high offense lead league but if you really want to go nuts with small sample size theater i looked at every player over the last two seasons in the majors so 2019 and 20 who had a minimum of 30 batted balls i get it that's not very many however looking at the hard hate rate leaders for those guys number one edwin rios 60.5 percent just above of miguel sano aaron judge and joey gallo i don't believe he's as talented as a hitter as those guys are but clearly he's pounding the ball and i found something pretty fun about what he's done so dave roberts had said that rios was the dodgers most improved player between spring training one and spring training part two that was from uh, jp hornstra one of the dodgers beat writers i really liked what ken gernick our dodgers.com beat reporter <laughs> tweeted and i quote edwin rios says he's improved his conditioning by boxing with barry larkin during the pause <laughs> which i sort of feel like could be a mad lib right like Cody Bellinger said he improved his conditioning by skydiving with Chris Sabo during the pause. You know, find like a 1990s red and an activity, and that would make just as much sense as this. Anyway, Edward Rios is not playing every day because the Dodgers are ridiculously deep. I just find it funny that here's a guy who, you know, is not a highly rated prospect. I think he's still like number 21 on the, the Dodgers pipeline list. 
and they can't find room for this dude who's pounding the ball. Although since Max Muncy has been pretty lousy while trying to play through a broken finger, maybe he'll get a shot. They have started four different first basemen in the last four games, and Edwin Rios, Rios uh, is one of them. Just what the Dodgers need. <laughs> another talented hitter i was gonna say the dodgers like it's like a they have like a factory you know first it was like max muncie a couple years ago then it was matt Beatty, and now it's edwin rios although muncie and Beatty are both been brutal so i guess maybe this is rios's turn to be the uh the, fl- the flavor of the month or the flavor of the year so to speak all right let's finish off with our purpose pitches our closing rants and i'm gonna go with mine first because matt sort of already stepped on it a lot but that's okay um i have had a problem with scoring decisions this year where it, let me back up for a second not just this year i've always had a problem with some of these scoring decisions where uh, a play is absolutely should have been made and because the fielder doesn't touch it no error is charged right this has been happening for years anecdotally it seems like it's worse this year i could never back that up or prove it but we do know that official scores aren't in the stadium so maybe uh, the one that stood out to me uh, from like a week ago is when christian yelich you can't see my air quotes here but there are giant air quotes hit a home run, but really Eloy Jimenez just went face first into the net because it was like a fly out to left field. Last night in the Orioles-Phillies game that, that we were talking about before, and Matt referenced some of these plays, Pedro Severino singled on a pop-up to the third baseman. That ball had an expected batting average based on the exit velocity and launch angle of zero. I didn't think that was possible. I thought we capped it at like 0.10. I guess we don't. Zero. That was a pop-up to the infield. So what happened there uh, at the time, there was two outs, bases loaded, 6-6 six, six tie. Well, that scored two. That puts a couple of earned runs on Hector Norris. He got the next guy to ground out, but he should have been out of it already. His ERA is 8-10. In the 10th inning, as Matt mentioned before, Austin Hayes hit an inside-the-park home run on a sharp line drive to center field. Now, that ball was hit well, right? 107 miles off the bat, uh, a 9-20 expected batting average. That should have been a single. It should not have been an out, so that's fine. But there should have been an RBI single and an unearned run because the guy who was on second was placed there in the extra inning. Instead, Roman Quinn dove for a ball he had absolutely no chance for. There is a stat cast metric called catch probability, which based on the distance and time and direction a fielder has to go, how likely is he to make that catch? 5%. There is a 5% chance he was going to make that catch. If he made it, it's the play of the year. So he dives. He doesn't touch it. The ball goes to the wall. And instead of being a single and an error, it's a home run. So now Deal Esguera, I just remembered a guy, Deal Esguera uh, has a 10.80 ERA because he got hit with a home run for giving up a line drive. I don't know. This has been bothering me for years. I feel like it's happening more. I can't prove it, but I don't like it. And it's not cool for the pitchers that they get hit with these hits and earned runs that they probably don't deserve. Uh, three points on that. First of all, I actually jumped into uh, our uh, StatCast Slack last night. And I said, Diolis Garris on the Phillies? It's wild. Right. I wrote, it's wild to be remembering a guy in real time. <laughs> well, there you go. So there's there's point one. Point two is I I could not agree more. It's always bothered me, even as a kid, that you couldn't get an error. Because, like, you know, we saw this again, too, the, the other day when Johnny Cueto lost a no-hitter because Hunter Pence lost the ball in the lights. You know, right. and I was like, that's an error, right? It's always been silly to me that that, you know, you had to touch a ball, essentially. Even if the rule book doesn't say that, that's how it explicitly say that. I think that's just always how it's been treated. Like, if you don't touch it, it can't be an error. Um, I do ever wonder if StatCast will get to the point where we could just make errors entirely uh, objective, where it's like, if it had a, uh, you know, a success probability of greater than 90% and you missed it, it's an error. Otherwise, it's not, you know, or something like that. Um, The last point I'll make is the Roman Quinn play, I thought was interesting because I was watching that game. And I do think 
that like Roman Quinn, I think players with the, the runner on second base rule in the top of the inning, in extra innings, the automatic runner on second base, have to recalibrate how they make decisions on defense. Because I felt like Roman Quinn made that play not realizing that his team was also going to get a runner on second base to start the bottom of the inning. Like it was a desperation of like, oh, I have to prevent this run from scoring at all costs. When like actually your team is going to get that runner on second. So like, you know what? You actually probably should just let let that fall in and let the run score because like if you can hold them to one run in the in the top of the inning, you have a very good chance of tying the game in the bottom of the inning. Whereas by allowing it to get past them and allowing two runs, you basically ruined any chance of the Phillies winning the game. Does that make sense? It does. I, I, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. It, it's probably hard to remember that the game situation has changed a little bit, but even so he had no shot to catch the ball, right? Like regardless of whether that was going to happen either way, he needed to like hold up and not turn a bad situation into a worse one. True. But I think, I think I'm, I'm speaking, maybe this is not the best example, but like, I think that broadly speaking, I think it's something that, you know, as bears watching in these extra inning games in the top of the inning, how, you know, the decision-making that fielders make sort of almost forgetting that they are also going to get the same advantage when they come to, to then allowing one run to score in the top of the inning is not nearly as bad as it is in, in, in previous years when you came to the plate with no one on base. That's all I'm saying. Fair, 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 fair. All right. What do you got? Uh, well, I'll stick actually with a player from the Phillies since we're, we're on the topic. Um, and my, uh, my purpose pitch is about Bryce Harper. Um, Bryce Harper sort of has become an under the radar player in kind of a weird way. You know, he had that, he was the, 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 phenom the the big prospect the chosen one all that he had that mvp season in 2015 that was basically a barry bonds-esque season and it was like okay here is this superstar and he's always been good but never been as good as he was in 2015 um he signed that big contract with the phillies and i think maybe because he left the team that he was associated with and the phillies were kind of not that great last year it just kind of got forgotten about but it's crazy to me that Bryce Harper now at age 27, essentially what's kind of like his peak is a bit of a forgotten man in baseball. And right now is hitting like peak, peak Bryce Harper. Right now his season line is 324 batting average, 479 on base percentage, 676 slugging. And if you can, if you bring in his expected stats from StatCast, he's actually his quality of contact right now is on the young season is better than it was in 2015. His, his weight on base is 473. It, this year it was 461 in 2015. Expected weight on base, 430 to 423. His walk rate is a little bit down, but is also his strikeout rate is also a little bit. I mean, sorry, his strikeout rate is, is down by a point and his, his walk rate is about the same. Um, Bryce Harper, I think we need to just appreciate him. When he's at the plate right now, I was watching his at-bats last night. It is like a master class in controlling the strike zone. In many ways, his approach, I think also partially just because of like his, the fact that he's a lefty and sort of the, like the, the, like the leverage he has in his swing. To me, it's, it is the closest we have to watching um, Bonds hit. And I, I think that like we need to appreciate Bryce Harper. There are so many great young stars in the game. I'm so excited about all the, the new generation, many of whom are now younger than him. Bryce Harper is still pretty young and is still capable of the kind of um, phenomenal play that all those guys are capable of. So I don't want, I don't want people to sleep on Bryce. He is still one of the, 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 uh, the game's great stars and starting off with a, a, a fantastic, what appears to be a fantastic season. That is very high praise. Uh, he is hitting 324, 479, 676. And we didn't really get into this that much this time, but 
Uh, offense is down across baseball. Like batting average is, I think, the lowest it's been since like the year of the pitcher in 1968. And that was sort of the issue with him last year is because his batting average was low because he'd hit into the shift. But we were like, it doesn't matter because he's crushing the ball and he's, you know, 25% above average. So in a world where everyone's batting average is down and especially more so for lefties this year than righties, his is up and everything is up. So I think maybe you're on to something where he may be on the verge of a special season. Unfortunately, it's only going to be a 60 game season, but Hey, I'm with you. I've always been a huge, huge Bryce Harper fan. And I would be pretty pleased if he put together, you know, a monstrous season. I don't think he can pitch out of the bullpen though. So I think that's still going to be a problem for the Phillies. Um, One more point I want to make, want to make on Harper before we go, which is he does have a history of having fantastic Aprils. He's like one of the best April hitters uh, ever. Um, uh, and, you know, at, at times, like in the last few years, he's like had great Aprils and then kind of just faded and fallen off a little bit. So you could say like, oh, this is just Bryce Harper starting starting well again. That Like he usually does. He's going to fall off. But like, I kind of don't think we can do that this year. I mean, this is so atypical. This isn't like your typical spring training into April. I think we just have to be like, okay, this is just a great hitter locked in and let's enjoy it. Uh, I agree with you. I hope he keeps it up. All right, that's our show for this week. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Keegan Matheson for talking with us about the Blue Jays. We will be back next week. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.